Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is none other than Jordan Teague. Jordan is an attorney and smart contract developer, and in her crypto native law practice, the Anti-Firm, she focuses on governance, regulatory, and other legal issues facing Web3 organizations. She is one of the core developers behind the incredible Cali DAO project and is a legal engineer with LexDAO. Jordan, welcome to the Law of Code podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jacob. It's my pleasure. I, I love starting this in a typical fashion with the Genesis block. Where were you first introduced to Bitcoin? I assume it's Bitcoin, but where were you first introduced to cryptocurrencies? Yeah, so I'm embarrassed to say I'm not one of those OGs who can claim that I was buying Bitcoin in 2013. But that actually, my introduction to crypto was probably more Ethereum than Bitcoin. So I had just started a law firm with my law partner, George Campbell. And he actually um, said one day, hey, have you heard of this Ethereum thing? I think we should mine it. And I said, okay, cool. <laughs> and so we actually bought some Ethereum miners to set up in our office and keep things warm in the winter here um, in South Carolina and had full intentions of really diving deep into the space then. And we saw a lot of promise and potential in smart contracts and how they were going to change our industry. But the reality is that life just got busy. We were trying to grow a business and kind of as the bull market rose and then fell sometime in 2017 or 2018, we kind of moved on to other shiny objects, I'm sad to say. And unfortunately, our, our Ethereum miners kept getting kicked offline, which is a real bummer because that would have probably been <laughs> the most profitable part of our law practice over the past few years. But so that was sort of the genesis block. And I remember thinking, we, we need to understand this. But I think that the, the real market use cases were so few and far between that it was difficult for us to conceptualize at the time how we could fit in. And so really, there was kind of a crypto bear market in my own life, if, if you want to call it that, until sometime during the pandemic. And when you were first mining, when did you make that connection between this is a way to experiment with a new technology and this is a very promising emerging area i know web3 wasn't used at the time but when did you make that connection between okay this is interesting versus let's try to build something in this space so for me i don't think that that really clicked until about a year ago so i mentioned i kind of have my own personal bear market Sometime in 2020 during the pandemic, I actually got a demo of Open Law, which is now you know, sort of morphed into um, the Tribute DAO project, is my understanding. And even then, after getting a demo of this really cool product, I was still kind of scratching my head, not really understanding how this you know, decentralized technology worked. It was just very confusing. And, and for some background, I've been coding ever since I was a little girl, since I was nine or 10 years old. I'll be dating myself by saying this, but <laughs> this was back in the day when, you know, you didn't have computers in your house. My dad would bring a computer home from work with him. I guess it was some giant laptop and he just set it up, you know, at the desk and said, here, play with this. And, and luckily I didn't go to the dark side and become a hacker or anything, but I just learned how to code. I've been kind of doing that in various capacities for my whole life. But so even as a coder, it was very confusing. And I think that this is, you know, a barrier to entry that you see a lot of people trying to cross from web two to web three, even as developers. But, but anyway, so, so even that open mall demo didn't really do it for me, but in 2021, we obviously had another bull market, which just kind of caught my attention. I kind of saw the hype. I jumped in, bought some Dogecoin with the best of them, 
But then I, I started doing some more reading into Solidity and smart contracts. And I thought, you know, this is the perfect opportunity. The world has pretty much stopped. This is the time I need to learn this. And so on a flight back from Europe, while all the normal people were you know, watching movies, I bought an internet connection and started doing Solidity tutorials. And I would say that was when it clicked. So for me, it was when, when I could actually see the code compile and remix and work its magic and do the things that, that I thought it should do. I, I realized instantly this is what we, this is what we have to do. This is what we have to pursue. And I, I think the next day I told my law partner, like web three is real. This is our chance. We, we have to shift our practice into this right now. That's very cool. And it's funny you mentioned flights. I think that's something where it can be, if, if used well, it can be the most productive time of your life because there's no real external distractions. You're forced to sit in that cubicle, so, so to speak, for a certain amount of time, especially a flight back from Europe. So you mentioned you had done some reading and then you were using Remix and, and you deployed a smart contract. What was it about the smart contracts that you found very different than typical code? Because I know you, you don't typically deploy code to a blockchain, but you typically set up a, a Python script or something, and then you can run it. What was it about this that, that was different or stood out to you? So I think there were a couple of things. The first one was just the decentralized nature of it. So if you've done any kind of web development, you've got to go get an AWS account or get a hosting account, get a password to upload to that server. And you're just doing a you know, two-way data exchange between that server. This was nothing like that. And this was honestly probably the biggest stumbling block for me. And what held me back for so long was figuring out how do you interact with a decentralized network? Who do I pay? <laughs> Where do I go get my hosting account? And so um, what, when I finally realized what was going on, it was a huge aha moment for me, especially just given how much we've seen in the past few years, what goes wrong when there's too much power in the hands of big intermediaries, realizing, oh my gosh, there's, there's a way to disintermediate and it's through this technology. So that was kind of more on a philosophical level, but then just on kind of a user level, it was interacting with them through MetaMask in my browser. I, th I think that MetaMask is probably for a lot of people kind of that aha moment when they finally interact with a Web3 website through MetaMask and they see the magic happen. I just can't really think of anything analogous in Web2 uh, to that experience. No, neither can I. And, and you made a great point about not having to go pay Amazon to access their servers when you have these nodes everywhere and you pay gas fees. It's an incredible innovation. And so you, I could see how you got interested and then you dove in. Why join a group like LexDAO? Why get involved with CaliDAO? And, and could you walk through that journey and why in particular you found it helpful? Yeah, totally. And, and I guess really the the Genesis block story of CaliDAO really begins in LexDAO. So I'll, I'll start with LexDAO. When I was doing all this Solidity learning, I was just Googling all the things. I don't even remember what I was looking for, but I came across an article that I think either Ross Campbell or James McCall, one of the you know OGs in LexDAO had written. And I saw a reference to LexDAO and legal engineering and I was really curious because this obviously resonated with me completely. I felt like this was the path I was on. I'm a lawyer. I'm a coder. I want to build things for my industry. So I popped into the Discord. This was my first Discord experience. And so, you know, hopefully it's comforting to anyone listening who's sort of new on the scene. Discord was just as overwhelming for me <laughs> as it is for you. I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, but I saw all these conversations happening on all these channels. It kind of reminded me a little bit, to be honest, of um, AOL chat rooms, which I know probably many listeners won't even know what I'm talking about, but just kind of a free-for-all, really, of jumping in and talking to strangers. And at the time, the process to join LexDAO was pretty difficult, and we've since changed that process because I think it took me an hour to figure out how to convert Ethereum to DAI to XDAI to WXDAI 
and submit a, a tribute proposal on Milwaukee Dow. And I'm not a dumb person, so but it took about an hour. So I finally got my proposal through, figured out how to get them to to vote on it, and and I joined. And from there, I was still kind of confused as to well, what do you do in a DAO, right? And so I thought, well, I'm just going to look for something to do. So I went on the GitHub and Ross and some other guys had started a repository called LexCorpus, I believe, which is a set of standard smart contracts that can be used by legal engineers, token contracts, that kind of thing. And so I, I was a math major. I'm a bit of a math nerd. And I found a situation in the code where there could be a divide by zero error. So I did a pull request. And that's what got Lightstyle's attention and you know realized that I was there and ready to contribute. So if you're trying to join a DAO and you're wondering what the heck do I do, really, honestly, the, the best thing to do is just find a way to jump in and kind of take the bull by the horns. DAOs can be a really chaotic place. And by nature, they're decentralized and there's typically not a lot of formal processes. I know in Lightstyle, we're trying to change that to make it a little more user-friendly for folks that are new to Web3, but but don't be discouraged if, if you don't know where to start. You just kind of start somewhere. But anyway, so I, I kind of joined the ranks of the legal engineers about a month later, was a big contributor to LexCorpus, and became good friends with Ross Campbell, who probably many listeners know. He's definitely an OG in the, the legal engineer space, has been a core developer of Sushi, very prominent player in crypto, but... But so he and I would often just kind of kick smart contract ideas back and forth, kind of have friendly competitions to see who could finish things first. And I remember chatting with him one day about the Moloch V2 contract. So I had just been reading some smart contracts to get ideas and to learn. And I read through it and, and this is no shade on Moloch V2. It's obviously incredible innovation, but it's very long. And I have a little bit of um, an OCD tendency with long legal documents. And so <laughs> that translates over into code as well. And, and I was like, Ross, there's got to be a better way. I, we, can't we write something shorter than this? And so he and I kind of just started playing around, trying to, to write something more elegant. And what started as an exercise in pure geekery turned into a project with a greater reason for being, which we now, now call CaliDAO. Originally, I think our working title was Light Dow or something like that. But one of our other core team members, Shiv, suggested that we use Kali. That is an Indian goddess who is a demon slayer and Moloch is a demon. So <laughs> there was a little bit of a, a subtle reference there. So that's kind of how Kali got started. It was really just a couple of friends coding together and realizing that they were onto something. What impressed me most about Kali Dow was that it solves a problem. Could you explain what that problem was and how Kali goes about solving it? Sure. So I think simply stated, the problem that Kali tries to solve is bringing a legal framework to, to a DAO. So it is a bring your own compliance kind of framework and that you know Kali does not automate every aspect of compliance. It doesn't replace lawyers. But what it does is gives DAOs and their attorneys an easy way to integrate with existing legal systems. So there is often a lot of benefit for a DAO to seek some sort of legal wrapper to limit the liability of its contributors, to potentially have more clarity on tax jurisdiction, that kind of thing. And, and what we saw was there were DAO deployers like Moloch DAO, but there was no way to really integrate in a legal framework. And so Kali has a few options that are pretty automated and crypto native, but also offers the option to really integrate any kind of legal format. So the formats that are crypto native are the Unincorporated Nonprofit Association, which listeners might be familiar with from the article by David Kerr and Miles Jennings on UNAs and kind of a proposed framework for managing a DAO treasury and having a, a legal wrapper for the DAO. The reason that that can be crypto native is that there's no filing requirement in the states that make that available. And, and this, by the way, is a, a U.S. entity. There may be similar entity types in other jurisdictions. But so under the state statutes, you, you just have to create the governance document. You don't have to go knock on the, the door of the secretary of state and say, hey, we want to be an UNA. You just do it. And so obviously you can 
do that on blockchain as opposed to on paper. The other sort of out of the box option is a series LLC. And this is sort of an experimental um, exercise, but it's a, it's a similar idea in that a series LLC, which is offered in states like Delaware, Texas, there are, I think, about a dozen in the U.S. that offer this. If you create a master parent LLC, you don't have to then go back to the secretary of state and knock on the door every time you want to create a baby series LLC underneath it. This is a format that's traditionally been used pretty heavily by real estate investment companies, by say business partners with multiple ventures. For instance, my business partner and I have a series LLC in Delaware, so we can just spin up little entities, but there's really nothing in the statute that restricts it to related deals. And so this is an experiment and how far can we push this concept? And so Kali has taken it upon itself to register a master LLC and you can create a baby series on chain. And the reason you can do that is that the master operating agreement says so. It says the way that you create a baby series is by minting an NFT from the smart contract. And then of course you can create any kind of legal entity you want. You could go register a standard LLC. You could register a corporation. You could go set up a Cayman Islands foundation company and then associate those legal documents with your colleague Dow. It's incredible. And I remember when Callie was first presented to everyone and, and I was looking through it, I called a friend and I said, man, you need to check this out. You get, it's almost like one click and you set up a company in, in the form of a DAO on chain. It, it was, it was incredible. You, you wrote a great thread on DAO legislation and we've seen a bit of that in Tennessee. There's the Tennessee DAO LLC and the Wyoming DAO LLC. And your thread was great in that you said neither. These DAO LLCs are just opinionated LLCs that create additional burdens with no apparent benefits. They have also created confusion among non-lawyers and many lawyers as well as to whether standard entity types can work for DAOs. Are there best practices you've seen in this space regarding to legal entity formation for DAOs. I know you mentioned UNAs and you mentioned the series LLC, like those seem to be two really good options, but are there other things that people should know about or think about when they're looking into this for their DAO? So I would say, honestly, the best practice is to begin from first principles when deciding how to, to structure the governance of your DAO just like you would do with any company. I think that, and I mentioned this in the thread, what, what these Dow LLC statutes do well is they signal good faith on the part of states and legislatures and wanting to embrace this technology. And I think that they raise awareness among Dow's and the general public that, hey, maybe it would be a good idea <laughs> if we're gonna form a Dow to get a legal entity. But what they do, I think, is they cause people to skip a step in their mind as to what should we actually register, right? Because they see Dow LLC and they assume this is how you create a Dow. But in reality, if you read those statutes, there, there's really nothing that you get out of it other than a standard LLC with, with additional obligations, additional disclosures that have to be made, having to identify smart contracts by public key and the articles of organization, things like that. So, so I would say the best practice is really to just call time out and instead of racing to the, the shiniest object that has Dow in the name to think through, how do we want contributors to, to be, what's the relationship between a contributor and the Dow, for instance? So I think one example of where Dow's kind of get hung up is if contributors are, say, members of an LLC, well, guess what? Those members are going to need to receive K-1s and they're going to have a taxable equity interest. And that's not necessarily the end of the world. And that might actually be desirable for, say, investment DAOs or service DAOs. But for, say, a guild of legal engineers, that could be problematic and it may discourage participation because now everybody has to dox themselves to everyone. And maybe that, you know, kind of wasn't the spirit of the community. So, so I would say it's really just that is think through what's the relationship of the contributors to the organization? What is the flow of funds going to be? Those sorts of things. And then you're going to, to yield a good answer. 
Yeah, that's a great point, Jordan. And one thing I wanted to underscore is the point you made that this is a great sign. It's good to see lawmakers engaging with the technology. And while it might not be perfect, I think they do get a bit of a hard rap from the legal community, especially the crypto law community, in that they're slowly iterating and improving. I know you, you mentioned a good point that the Tennessee's definition of smart contract is more on point than Wyoming's describing an event-driven program rather than an automated transaction, just as one example of the changes that we're beginning to see. I want to talk a bit about your firm and your legal practice. You call it the anti-firm. I'd love to hear where that name came from and the, the story behind that. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. I actually registered that domain name years ago. And I don't know if this was prophetic or what, but I thought I'm going to need this one day, but I don't know why. <laughs> and so the the dirty little secret is the anti-firm is really just kind of a sub-brand underneath my main law firm, which is Campbell Teague, LLC, the Teague and that. And it just so happens that the Campbell in that is not Ross Campbell, but it's uh, my friend George Campbell. So just a coincidence there. But the reason that we decided to start utilizing the brand anti-firm was, you know, we realized that just sort of a stiff corporate law firm brand was not going to resonate with crypto clients. The more that I interacted in Discord, crypto, Twitter, I kind of quickly realized, you know, these well, these are my people and I know how my people think and it's not like big law, right? I think that connecting with Web3 clients on a brand level is really important for establishing trust too, because there are so few ways to do that. And, and I really feel for Web3 founders who are out there looking for competent lawyers and not knowing how to screen them, because... You can't ask a lawyer who they represent generally. You can't really get a lot of details of what they've worked on because of attorney-client privilege. And you know, most founders have never had to hire a lawyer before. So I think that having a brand that resonates with the DJ culture is at least one little step down the path of establishing that trust and showing, hey, we're DJs too, <laughs> and, and we feel where you're coming from. So that's, that's kind of where the anti-firm brand came from. I really like that. And and it's a good point. Finding a lawyer in Web3 is difficult. And, and we've seen things like this play out, even with the Board Ape license, where it doesn't speak on what happens if the NFT is stolen and resold to a good faith purchaser. In the case of Seth Green's the other day, it's, it's difficult if you haven't thought through all the potential events, like a hard fork even, where you, sure, the chances of Ethereum hard forking again are next to none, but it's still possible and it should be mitigated. And that's the lawyer's job is to, to mitigate risk. You advise Web3 startups at the anti-firm. You provide fractional general counsel services, DAO structuring, and much more. Why add this function to your firm? And how has your practice changed since embracing the anti-firm idea? Well, so fundamentally, a lot of these services that we offer are nothing new. And, and they're things that we've done in trad law since our inception. And we have always really gotten energized by helping clients think through their business and legal strategy holistically. And so, so in many ways, it's really not a new offering, but, but why go after web? You know, I can't really think of a better answer. And I know it's kind of cheesy, but I'm, I'm just incredibly passionate about it now. And like we were talking about with the possibility of disintermediation. I just can't imagine supporting any other industry now. I think that what's happening in Web3 is so important and it's also just so fascinating. And, and you mentioned on Twitter that you present clients with pros and cons charts to help drive actionable advising versus this is what the law says and then a couple paragraphs. Could you provide an example of communication styles or, or things like the chart that you use to communicate with clients that you find clients that you find benefits clients as well as yourself in that communication process? Absolutely. So I mentioned that I was a math major. And so my brain works much better in zeros and ones than it does bloviating pros like most lawyers. Um, I think a lot of lawyers come from a poli sci background. Um, I came from a math econ background as well as computer science, obviously. And if you've ever been to court, you'll notice, or if you've ever read legal briefs, you'll notice that sometimes a defense strategy is to confuse issues. And one way they can do that is by just rambling on and on. 
And I think that we can do that to ourselves sometimes when we're trying to solve problems. We just kind of ramble on and on in our head and we have a lot of information thrown at us and we feel like we're drinking through a fire hose. And so what I find is that creating charts or creating bolded lists or just some sort of framework like that really helps to distill what are the real issues here? And then what are the possible decisions that we can make? So and the most basic example might be some sort of decision to incorporate a DAO as various kinds of entities. Maybe you have this entity, this entity, or this entity, and there are pros and cons associated with all three, right? And so you identify those, you chart them out, and now you have a framework that you can think through, but you can also discuss with your client. And I think that in advising clients that can be helpful too, because sometimes they want secret option D that doesn't exist, right? And it's helpful in showing that these really are the options and I know you want to have your cake and eat it too, but we need to think realistically. Another example, and this would be kind of from my litigation background, would be in proving claims. At the end of the day, you might get to trial. You've got to prove your claims. You've got to have all the evidence. And each claim has an element that must be proven. Charts, I think, are very effective for that in not only breaking down just sort of at a high level what you need, but then maybe even identifying what is the specific evidence we have, and even linking to it. So I, I know that my, the attorneys and the project managers that work for me love to hate me and hate to love me for my love of charts, but I think that they've really grown to see the benefit too. And, and they know that often if they send me a five paragraph email explanation, that the response is going to be, Hey, can you make me a chart? I love it. You have to be consistent. And well, one thing I've felt found very helpful to build off that is, and I, I don't know if it was you who mentioned this on Twitter, but one thing I've done for a while is present things like a math problem in that here's a summary or the answer in one or two sentences, and here's how I got to that answer. And then you have that research below so then they can understand the it's that point first writing style. They understand the idea and where you're going, what the answer is, and then they can go in rather than burying the lead and they have to read through and try to figure out what the answer is and, and where the, the value is there. Is that something you've done or have you iterated on that at all? Oh yeah, no, that's spot on. And, and what I call that when I'm trying to coach my attorneys and other staff is show your work just like you would in third grade math. It's exactly right. What the client wants or what your superior wants or whoever your client is, they want an answer and then they want to be able to, to see why. But but at first they need the answer. They want to know what is the hypothesis that you're trying to prove up. And then that helps in digesting all of the follow-up information. So I totally agree. Yeah, people want to know why. And I think that's just such an important thing to keep in mind there. One thing, just to jump around a, a little bit, I'd love to hear your thoughts on learning solidity and learning how to code smart contracts, but not from the basic level. I've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about how do you first get involved? And I think people have a good idea where you can go to crypto zombies, you can watch tutorials, you can either start with a different like C++ or something and then get into solidity. But once you've got that baseline knowledge, which I think you seem to have entered into the solidity development game with, what's a good process to go from beginner to intermediate and then intermediate on? So for me, I think collaborative coding was probably what took me to the next level. It, it was helpful to, to, to just kind of ideate and write smart contracts and put things out there on GitHub. But it's another thing to actually bounce ideas off of other really smart people like Ross. And, and that's not to say that Ross just corrected everything that I did. A lot of times I'd have you know, things to contribute and say about his work. But I think that seeing other people's styles, learning from their experience um, is hugely helpful. And so if you're able to join a group like Let's DAO or maybe something like Developer DAO, I'm not a part of that, but, you know, a, a group where you have friends that you can code with, I think that's really helpful. But then another one is just putting yourself out there. So one thing I try to be disciplined about, and I haven't been as good about it lately, is put things on GitHub and then tweet them and see what happens and give me a scary thing. And I definitely have some imposter syndrome because it's, I mean, I'm sort of still the new kid on the block in some ways, but you get a lot of great feedback that way. And you also get affirmation, like I can do this. So 
it's kind of just getting the reps in and then playing on a team versus a um, individual sport. Yeah, it's difficult when you begin to share things publicly because you're worried, oh, well, if I made a mistake, people are going to remember me for that. And it's funny that once you begin to do that, people don't remember the losers. And that's because they're the the bad ones. They're the non-memorable iterations of a product that you've put out. They will remember the success ones like Kali Dow and, and things like that. So it's a it's a great reminder to to discuss that bridge between smart contracts and the legal profession and you embody it as well as anyone in that you have the legal background and the solidity ability. Let's talk Ricardian contracts. You gave a great explanation on Eric Hess's Encrypted Economy podcast. Could you explain what Ricardian contracts are and why they may be important and may gain in importance going forward in the future? So my understanding of Ricardian contracts, and this is a concept that I believe has been around for a while now, it did not originate in crypto, is they are contracts that are both machine readable and human readable. So it's something that can be programmatically executed in some ways, but also understood by a human. And so a lot of smart contracts might fall in the first category, but not necessarily the second. And... I think one interesting area of development that I see in LexDAO, and I feel like we're always kicking ideas around about, is how do you make these more human readable? And, and what does that even mean? Like, does it mean to put comments in the Solidity code? Or does it mean to display something on the front end, understanding that the average user isn't going to be poking around on Etherscan reading the contract? But, but I think it's an important concept because obviously, if something happens on chain, it's immutable and it's enforceable in the sense that nobody can force reverse that transaction. But we also still have laws and legal systems and government. And so long as we do, the idea of legal enforceability is also really important. And a court could order that a transaction be reversed and that a party send a digital asset back. And they couldn't force a party to do that, but they could hold the party in contempt and they could throw them in jail. And so legal enforceability relates to that idea of human readability and the ability for a human being to understand what they're doing. Because one of the things that you learn in Contracts 101 is if people don't understand what it is that they're doing, then there might not be a valid contract. So I believe that kind of addresses why it's going to be important going forward. But I think it remains to be seen exactly how that gets implemented in Web3. It's, it's an innovation that I think everyone can see the inevitability of in, in some respects, given how many transactions are likely to be on-chain in the future and that continued adoption of blockchain technology, having a contract built into the code could be enormously valuable. Just to tie in the legal system as it exists today, given your background with smart contracts and things you've seen what do you see the biggest change being in the legal system moving forward over the next 10 to 20 years, given the adoption of this technology? Hmm. As far as the biggest, I'm not sure, but I can tell you a couple of areas that I think we'll need to see some change in. And I think therefore, you know, we'll see some progress. So the first is in the area of real world assets and blockchain. So there's plenty of projects out there right now tying real world assets to tokens and you know you can tokenize anything you want to. But the problem is you know it's all well and good if I decide that I'm going to convey something to Jacob via a blockchain transaction, but that same asset is actually covered by uniform commercial code rules on transfer and I go convey it again off-chain to someone else. And so there's sort of this disconnect between the real world legal system and kind of going back to what we were talking about with legal enforceability. We need not only the ability to conceptualize an asset as a token, but also to make sure that a conveyance of that asset representation is enforceable in real life. And in order for that to work, I think we're going to need to see local governments embrace this technology and actually just get their registries on chain. Because if they do that, then at least in the case of assets where there are filing requirements, you're not going to have that problem of double conveyance. 
Another area that I hope we see some reform is in the U.S. securities regime. And anyone listening, it's it's no secret that the securities regime is a big stumbling block for a lot of crypto projects because the applicability and the obligations are very ambiguous. But I think what really rubs me the wrong way about the securities regime is that it's standing in the way of ordinary, honest, hardworking people from investing together to create really cool things and then profit from it. The, the U.S. securities regime, unfortunately, just enables the rich to get richer. And so for that reason, I, I think it really holds back the true promise of Web3, which is to merge customer and user with owner and to allow people to own the things that they use. So I really hope that we will see change there. I, I couldn't agree more in some cases. It's just abhorrent and it's it's where the rules are detached from reality and that's where you start to get into problems and there, there's not broad principles that are followed. There's these narrow rules that they try to apply to everything. I'd love to hear what excites you most when you think of the legal changes or the legal innovation that we'll see from the emergence of Web3. I may have already touched on these a bit, one of which being, I hope that crypto results in some sort of reform of our securities regime to, to actually enable ordinary folks to invest and to, to realize the profit that rich people have been all along. So when you say it can give more opportunity, how do you balance the opportunity with the risks, given that a lot of these laws are in place to reduce information asymmetry between the investors and the, the managers? Well, so I think the really ironic thing is that the very system that these laws hold back promote information openness. And so it seems to me that there is some sort of middle ground solution where, sure, there's regulation that prevents fraud and that makes fraud illegal and that punishes fraud, but that recognizes public blockchains are there for everyone to see. It's no secret where money is going. And obviously not, not every fact that you'd want to know about a company is on the blockchain, but there's the financials right there. So... So it seems to me that heavy-handed regulation isn't necessarily what we what we need here. We need to identify, and this kind of goes back to approaching it from first principles and not just file save as in the existing system and making some red lines. What are we trying to accomplish here? Are we trying to prevent fraud? Okay. Well, where are the potential what are the potential risk factors for fraud? How do we address those? But, but I don't know that we necessarily need the entire Securities Act of 19, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, and it's unbelievable when you read a full prospectus. It's hundreds of pages often, especially if it's a crypto-related company. And that the whole idea of this registration is to issue these public disclosures via Edgar. How many retail investors read these disclosures on Edgar? What is really the point? Are these just hoops to jump through just so this whole entire establishment can exist and can justify the amount of money that they're spending on whatever they spend it on? It's it's interesting when you, when you put it like that. Do you see, like, where do you see the steel man argument against or for, I, I guess it would be against crypto, but for what the SEC is doing and how they're approaching? Like, where is the best argument that they have against it and I think this is important because then it can allow people to start to think about how do we actually respond to this and show them that this is that their argument is wrong. So I suppose their steel man arguments would lie in anecdotal examples. So this is not a commentary on whether Luna or UST was a security and regulated by the SEC, but to the extent that it was, that might be their exhibit A is look what happened. None of these people realized what they were buying. They all thought they were buying a, a debt. UST is not a debt. And there, there should have been more disclosure required. And I think that might be a fair point. Now, 
does that mean that every company needs to go through a half a million dollar proposition of an IPO or a Reg A plus or something like that? But, but I think that might be the case right there. Yeah. Yeah. And examples like that are difficult for the crypto community at large because it's, you can see where, where they're, they're coming from and they're not wrong in a case like that. To, to me, the whole principle of disclosure can easily be mitigated by setting up a system where these companies can easily disclose. The question would then become how, who's liable if these disclosures are A, false, B, intentionally false, or C, like, but then you bring auditors in, right? If you have an auditor, a third party, third party accounting firm or something who's supposed to come in, a smart contract auditor, you can have these checks and balances within the industry. Do you think that we'll start to see those develop? Potentially. And as I'm thinking about the UST Luna example, another issue, let's pretend those are securities and let's pretend that the founder is the one who should be responsible. Well, guess what? He's not on US shores. How how are they even going to find him? How are they going to enforce anything against him? And so I think and not that the not that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is the only regulatory body out there that is acting to protect consumers around the world, but just using them as an example, the laws may not actually serve their intended ends if you know you can't actually enforce against the people that you want to hold responsible. And shoot, I'm I'm losing my train of thought a bit. I'm trying to remember where I was going with this. So I'll kick it back into your court for a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you, you're talking about I, the idea of maybe extraditing or South Korea where Do Kwon's located. And it really, that that's one of the biggest questions when it comes to crypto is that idea of a jurisdictionless entity for almost the first time in history where you have a pseudonymous actor that's transferring value across the internet. Whereas before it's information and sure information you, you can capture and is freely flowing in a sense. But when it comes to value, $40 billion wasn't being wiped out overnight before crypto. And now we're starting to see those risks perpetuate themselves in the real world. And it it will be interesting to see how, like, I cannot believe the list of governing entities in the US when it comes to crypto. You have FinCEN, right? You have the SEC, you have the CFTC, of course, you can go on and on. What's this? How are all these different entities going to work together in the future? Well, the regulatory state is, you know, notoriously confusing here in the United States, and and so I don't think this is a uniquely crypto problem. And and one does wonder how you roll back big government once it's out of the box, right? It's a lot easier to just start with less government to begin with. And I'm kind of a political nihilist, so that's not really a political statement either. But you know, it, do, it does seem to me like we. We have a regulatory regime that's too confusing and, and people don't even really know what applies to them. But kind of circling back, as I, I remember what I was going to say about the SEC. Let's pretend that the SEC does have um, a lot of legitimate reasons to want to regulate this. And they, they think they probably do have some legitimate reasons. I think we have to balance those reasons against the harm to consumers of not being able to participate in a system. And let's not forget that the very governments that keep people from playing in venture capital, let those same people walk down to the gas station and buy lottery tickets as much as they want. So we can't really pretend that it's all about protecting the consumer. We've got that counterexample. Yeah, it's such a good one. And that's something I point to all the time when I'm talking about accredited investor laws where with the lottery, they just say, hey, your odds of winning are one in 5 million or whatever it is. Why don't they just do the same thing with investing in startups? (laughs) And then all of a sudden it's okay, right? Your chances of a startup failing are one in 10. Like that's way better than a lottery ticket. And it's it's still being regulated so heavily and keeping investors out. It's really really sad to see that. And, And I think that will begin to change. We've seen it slow, like very slowly make some changes just regard to who qualifies as an accredited investor. And there's some countries where it's based on a percentage of your income. You can put one or 2% of your income into startups and unregistered securities. And I think that's almost a bit of a no brainer. I'd love to talk about some projects in the crypto space with you quickly. And Cali is is one that's fascinating. Everyone listening to this should check it out immediately. It's mind blowing. And I'm 
hoping that that will start to become possible in different jurisdictions across the world because it enables people to coordinate and to work together in a much safer way for them personally, but also in a way that can really let them spread their wings and, and build. Are there other projects in this crypto NFT DAO space that you're keeping a close eye on, Jordan? So I think one thing that I'm really interested in, and, and this is a little bit more with my lawyer hat on than my coder hat, is DAO governance frameworks that allow allow contributors to earn ownership without running afoul of securities laws. And I know we keep hammering the securities law point. That That is a problem right now for a lot of DAOs is figuring out how do you navigate you know, giving people equity interests, is it through their investment of money? Is it something else? And there are a lot of really smart lawyers that have been writing about the use of cooperatives um, as a DAO governance framework. The cooperative is essentially an entity where an employee gets to own part of it because they're contributing. And so I'm, I'm curious to, to see how maybe that format, uh, or to see if that format gets used more and what kind of innovations are used to allow, say, DAO members to earn the native token through their work or something like that. Another area that I'm keeping my eye on is the relationship between intellectual property and blockchain transactions. You mentioned, for instance, the Seth Green NFT issue. And I, I think a lot of the commentary I, I saw popping up on Twitter, it just sort of as a knee-jerk reaction, really demonstrated to me the lack of understanding among you know lawyers and non-lawyers regarding the relationship of NFT art and intellectual property. And obviously transferring, if you receive an NFT, you haven't necessarily received any copyright, but how do we use the blockchain to represent licenses and transfers? And some of the stumbling blocks, it's similar to real world assets, are the issue that we have off-chain systems that we use. So, you know, you can register copyrights with the copyright office. You could enter into a paper license or IP transfer. How do you make sure that what's happening on-chain and off-chain sync with each other? Or how do you how do you create a situation where there's chain deference so that everybody knows if it happened on the blockchain, that's what really happened. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how that evolves. Yeah. And, and even with that, right, it becomes chain deference to a certain extent in some cases. And Seth Green's a great example where you want chain deference unless it's stolen. And then what do you do now? It's you enumerate the rightful owner who purchased it lawfully. And, and now all of a sudden you have this balancing act and the idea of ownership is a legal right. And if you want to have that legal right to exist in meat space, you need to find a way to remedy that on chain and, and off chain. It, it will be fascinating to see. Just a rabbit trail on the Seth Green NFT. If, if anyone's interested, just pull up the Board Ape Yacht Club license and read it. It's only about three paragraphs. And I would challenge you to decide how how does one get copyright licensed under that? And when, if at all, is that license terminated? My reading of it is it's possible that license never terminates. And it's possible once a licensee, always a licensee. So you could have a lot of just non-exclusive licensees of this art. So if I bought it, I held it for a while. I sold it to Jacob. He held it for a little while. He sold it to someone else. I mean, it's it's at least possible that we all have some sort of license that hasn't terminated. So I would just encourage you to read it and, and see what you think. Yeah. And there's some great threads on it online as well on Twitter, where they talk about how there's these conflicting statements within the license where it becomes the purchaser owns the NFT and the associated art. And then it goes on to say, the ownership is represented on the Ethereum smart contract and on the Ethereum blockchain. Well, those two things might be different. There might be someone who had it transferred, didn't necessarily purchase it. You get into all these difficult questions. So thank you for highlighting that, Jordan. To, to wrap it up, I'd love to hear, let's start with habits and then we'll get into one piece of advice at the end. But I'd love to hear, given all the things you're juggling and you're soon to be a mother, congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> thank you're, you so you're, much. Yeah, very, very excited for you. What habits do you, you do you bring into your day, into your legal practice to help you juggle everything? So I think that one 
habit, and it might even be more of a frame of mind that that I've always had and that's helped me and served me really well is to set boundaries early on. Nobody's going to set your boundaries for you. And I'm mostly referring to boundary between work and personal life. In order to be an effective lawyer or an effective professional in whatever field you are, you need to be a human being that's holistically well. You need to sleep. <laughs> you need to exercise. You need to do all the things to make you, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually well. And so I think it's just so important for those just breaking into the workforce to find a way to do that. And obviously don't be insubordinate, <laughs> but, but just remember, nobody's going to do that for you. And you don't always have to say yes. Sometimes it's yes. And yes. And can I get it to you in a couple of days? So that would, that would be one I would, I would definitely suggest. Another one is to be a problem solver and not a problem identifier. And I, I don't know exactly when I picked this up along the way, but, but, but I quickly started noticing both as a lawyer and when I worked in advertising before I went to law school, that it was a lot more useful to my superiors if I could come to them with a solution than just a laundry list of problems. And so this is a, a habit that I try to instill in my employees as well now is when you get an assignment, your your job is to figure out a solution, and it's okay if it's wrong. But but don't don't consider your job done by just spotting the issues. So I, I guess those aren't necessarily habits so much as just mentalities to approach your work with that have been really useful for me. And are there one? Are there any habits or, or even frames of of reference or? or- first principles that you bring into your life outside of your legal career that, that you think have helped you be successful? Have fun. I would say life is supposed to be fun. So a a job is a job. Not every waking moment of, of everything that you do is going to be a joy ride, but I think just trying to have a sense of humor, not take yourself too seriously and just have fun. I know that for my, for my law firm, that's, that's something that definitely sets our culture apart from the typical law firm. We all have a good time. We like working together. We enjoy coming in and life's too short not to have fun. I love it. Have fun. That's a great one. Have fun and buy the dip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Is, is there any advice that you were given early on in your career or in life or things you, you learned that have really shaped who you've become today? So I would say, don't be afraid to try something new and don't be crippled by imposter syndrome, especially if you want to operate in a space like Web3, you're going to have to get comfortable being very uncomfortable all of the time. And I think it's useful to remember somebody had to figure this stuff out at some point. It might as well be you, right? And I think for lawyers, we're trained to be risk averse and to try to mitigate risk. And, and that's not bad and it's understandable, but don't let that define how you're making decisions about your career. Again, and, and so, somebody had to learn it. Somebody had to figure it out. It might as well be you. I love it. I love it, Jordan. Thank you so much. And people can find you on Twitter at Jordan Teague. Is there anywhere else you people should reach you or, or reach out if they want to learn more about the anti-firm and what you're building? Sure, they can check us out at antifirm.com. Amazing. Got the domain locked down a couple <laughs> years ago. That's great, Jordan. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a really fun conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.